Andrew Womack Ministries presents this session from the 2014 Jacksonville Gospel Truth Rally. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. Tonight, I want to share some things with you that will help you again to receive from God. And I just want to preface this by saying that, you know, most people, again, all of you that are here tonight believe in the, in the supernatural power of God. You believe God can do anything, and yet there are many people here that aren't receiving the benefit of that, and th there's a reason for it. And basically it comes down to that it's our lack of knowledge. You know, it says in, where is it? Um, Hosea 4, 6, it, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. And that's what's happening. People don't realize that God has put this supernatural raising from the dead power on the inside of you. We think it's out there and we have to pray it down and somehow or another jump through these hoops in order to get God to move. This is the way it's been presented. And I'm telling you, that is not true. So I just want to share some really simple things with you tonight that if you can receive this, it will allow you to go directly to the throne and receive from God. So let's turn over here to Colossians chapter one and start with these verses. In Colossians chapter one, and let's jump down to verse nine. Paul begins to pray a prayer for the people in Colossae and here's what he said. He says, for this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. And you know, this, uh, the book of Colossians and the book of Ephesians are basically the same letter. It's, it's the same truths written by the same person, but just in different words, but they parallel each other and you can compare Ephesians and Colossians and they cover the same material. This same thing is explained in Ephesians chapter one, beginning with verse 14 through the end of that first chapter. And if you study these things, this is not my point tonight, but this is a great point that Paul wasn't praying that they would get something new, that God would do something new. Now see, basically the church today is believing that God has all power. He can do anything, but he hasn't done it yet. And the church is in the process of begging and pleading with God to move and to pour out his power. Ephesians and Colossians aren't taking that approach. They're praying that God would give a revelation to his people about what they've already got, that they would begin to understand it. And this is one of the things that happens when you come to Bible college is that, man, you get this ground into you that the power of God isn't out there. It's on the inside of you that you've already got it. You already have the power that raised Jesus from the dead on the inside of you. There is no way that you cannot get it. You've already got it. But there's things you can do that will release it and help you to appropriate it. Somebody might be thinking, what's the difference one way or the other, whether I have to go get it or just get a revelation, I need something. It is infinitely easier to get a revelation of what you've already got than it is to beg God for something that you don't believe that you have. That's huge. I could preach on this all night long, but I'm really just, this is on, along the way to a point that I'm wanting to get to. So it says, for this cause, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you that, and desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Notice that you walking worthy of the Lord and being fruitful is dependent upon you knowing his will and having this knowledge and understanding. And then he prays again that you would increase in the knowledge of God. In verse uh, 11, he says, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and long suffering uh, with joyfulness. And notice that being strengthened unto all might comes again through knowing him, having this knowledge and these things imparted unto you. In verse 12, it says, giving thanks unto the father which hath. And some, I'm having to point these things out because most people read through this and don't catch it, but this is in the past tense. 
which hath, that means that it's already done, who hath made us meet. And the word meet means able or equipped, qualified to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. God has already qualified you and enabled you to partake of this power that's on the inside of you. If this is a typical group, I can guarantee you there's lots of people sitting right here in this room who believe God has all of this power, but you just don't feel like you are able to partake of it. Matter of fact, I had one woman come up to me tonight and she says, you know, I, try, I came before, I wasn't able to get to you, but I want to ask, would you please ask God to heal me? And she was implying that she had prayed and it hadn't worked for her. Would it, maybe he'd hear it for me. And this is what a lot of people think, that there's certain people that just have an inside track to God. There's certain people that God answers our prayers differently than others. But the truth is God hath, past tense, already made you able to partake of the inheritance of the saints in light. You should be able to receive anything that anyone else has received. There aren't special people in the body of Christ. We're all equal in our spirit. We've all been redeemed. I'm preaching better than you're listening. That's important what I just said. I guess maybe some of you are mulling it over wondering, could this be true? It is true. The only thing that makes a difference between a person who's walking in the power of God and seeing miracles happen and the person that isn't is the knowledge that they have. Knowledge is power. I can give you a verse on that. Second Peter chapter one, verse three and four says, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to glory and virtue. Everything that you need comes through knowledge. So if you are in need of something, if something isn't working in your life, you don't know the truth. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. So we've got to get into the word of God and renew our minds. And then he says in verse 13, who hath delivered us. Notice again, the terminology, it's already done. I couldn't tell you how many people have come and asked me and said, I need deliverance. He's already delivered you. And people say, well, then why am I bound? Because you don't know the truth. You shall know the truth and the truth make, shall make you free. Truth doesn't make you free. It's only the truth you know that makes you free. And what you don't know is killing you. It's killing you. Man. I could preach on all of this stuff. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. It's already done. You're already there. You're seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. You know, to the average Christian, this is just religious rhetoric. You're just sitting there saying, well, that preach is good. It sounds good. Yeah, we're seated in heavenly places, but it's not a reality. The truth is it is a reality. You have supernatural power and authority. And somebody says, but I'm being beat up by sickness and disease and poverty and depression. The devil is beating you because you don't know what you've got. The truth is you've already been delivered. You're already equipped. You already have all of this power. And if you knew that, if you really knew it at a heart level, I can guarantee you, you would see that manifestation. The more you understand, the easier it is to manifest it, the quicker it manifests. But when you really know that I've been delivered from the powers of darkness and translated in the kingdom of his dear son, even if you don't understand much about it, if you really knew that, you would just keep trying you wouldn't give up, you wouldn't be discouraged, you would keep standing and eventually you'd just accidentally figure it out. You know, an old blind squirrel will get a nut every once in a while if he doesn't quit. But most people just have quit because, well, I prayed and nothing happened. You weren't absolutely convinced. If you really understood, you've already been delivered. You're already a winner. You are already more than a conqueror. Man, if you just started believing that, something would happen. You know, I was in the Baptist church when the Lord first touched my life and I got turned on and I began to study the word and I didn't understand very much at all 
about the Word of God, but I begin to read that these same works that I've done will you do also. You will lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. You'll cast out devils. I began to read that stuff and I didn't understand anything. I'd never heard of Copenhagen, Copeland and Hagen. I'd never heard anything about faith. I didn't know any of this stuff, but I just knew that the Word of God said we could do this and I started believing for it. I didn't know that there had been a person healed in 2,000 years. I'd never heard a healing testimony. I'd been told that all this stuff passed away with the apostles and didn't happen anymore. But when I got to studying the word, something just happened and I began to believe for it. And you know, I started seeing blind eyes open, deaf ears open. I saw cancers healed long before I knew that there was another person on the planet that had ever seen it. Just because I got a revelation that I've already been translated out of the kingdom of the devil and into the kingdom of God's dear son. He made me able, me to be a partaker of the inheritance. I didn't understand how to do it. And I just did it. And I didn't see a lot of fruit. There was a lot of people I prayed for and didn't see things happen. I see better results now than I used to see. But you know what? I still start, started seeing things just because I was uh, pursuing these things. So here's the verses that I was wanting to get to in the next verse, in verse 14. It says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. You know, this sounds really simple. This sounds really, really simple. And people say, well, I know that my sins are forgiven. I don't need anybody to tell me about that. The average Christian does not understand the degree to which God has forgiven our, our sins. The average person believes that when you come to the Lord, your sins were forgiven up to a point when you got born again. But then after you're born again, every time you sin, that is a new transgression against God and you have to repent of that sin and get that sin under the blood and forgiven or, and there's variations on this, uh, the ultra Pentecostals will believe that if you don't get that sin repented of, and under the blood and something was to happen and you were to die, you'd go to hell. But a lesser interpretation, but it's the same thing, same principle, that your sin is a new offense against God. A lesser interpretation that like uh, fundamentalists and uh, evangelicals, you don't lose your salvation. You don't go to hell if you sin, but you lose all of your benefits. God won't heal you. He won't answer your prayer. He won't fellowship with you. And you cannot expect to have joy and peace if you've got sin in your life. That's basically the same thing. It's like a stick that has two opposite ends on it, but it's the same stick. It's the same thing to say, well, God is gonna send you to hell if you don't get your sin repented of. After you're born again, I'm talking about, he's gonna send you to hell or he's not gonna visit with you, fellowship with you, he won't answer your prayer. It's the same principle, just lesser consequence. But this says that we have already received redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. And I wanna share with you tonight that this isn't talking about just past sins when you first got born again, but when you got born again, God forgave all of your sins, past, present, and even sins that you haven't committed yet have already been forgiven. Your sins are forgiven and there's nothing you can do about it. That is nearly too good to be true. And I know some of you right now got a million questions. Hopefully I'll be able to answer a few of them. Let's turn over here to Hebrews chapter nine and let me share this with you. Man, I wish I had time to go through the whole book of Hebrews. Hebrews is a great book transitioning people out of the law, legalistic mentality into grace. And I tell you, we need the book of Hebrews today more than they needed it in the days that this was written. We got more Pharisees around today than they had 2000 years ago. We are baptized in religious legalism. It's amazing. So here in Hebrews chapter nine, it, it's been building a progression of things, talking about the new covenant, showing you like in Hebrews chapter seven that the priesthood has changed. Jesus wasn't a priest under the uh, 
under Levi, he came out of the tribe of Judah. So the priesthood has changed. The entire law has to change. We are no longer under the Old Testament law. Hebrews chapter eight, it, it just is amazing what is said in Hebrews chapter eight. And it goes back and quotes Jeremiah chapter 31 about how Jeremiah prophesied that there was gonna be a new covenant. And let me just go back to one verse in Hebrews chapter eight. This is part of this new covenant in verse 12, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Did you know that that'll get you kicked out of nearly any church in America today if you preach that? They're saying, God's angry at you. God won't bless you. God won't uh, fellowship with you. God won't use you if you've got sin in your life. I was raised in a church where the pastor, he, he used to scream and shout and he would, they had a microphone on the pulpit right here and he would literally put his feet up here where you put your Bible and he would jump up there and bend over and grab the mic and scream, you're going to hell. Always had to put a uh on the end. And he would preach that if you don't pay your tithes, God will take it out in doctor bills. Sin's got to be judged. Sin's got to be judged. And he had scripture for it. You can turn to the 59th chapter of Isaiah where, you know, my hand didn't shorten that it cannot save, nor my ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God. And you can find scriptures like that, but they're Old Testament. And the thing that's wrong with that logic is that sin has been judged in the flesh of the Lord Jesus. <laughs> Hallelujah. And I am not going to be judged for my sin by God because God placed his judgment for my sin upon Jesus. And when a person is preaching that God's going to judge you because of sin, God won't move in your life. God doesn't love you. God's displeased with you because of sin. That would all be true if it wasn't for Jesus. But Jesus paid for our sins completely, past, present, and future. And now... The New Testament says, I will be merciful to your unrighteousness and your sins and iniquities I'll remember no more. In Romans chapter five, Paul said, where sin abounds, grace abounds greater. Man, I'm making some major statements right here that the average Christian doesn't believe or embrace, but they're all based on scripture. And did you know that sin is not an issue today with God? which again, that'd get me kicked out of nearly any church. This is why I have to rent a place. <laughs> you know, none of the big churches will let me in. I could go to some small churches, but the big church, they don't preach this because man, this is will offend religious people. But sin's not an issue. God's not upset at you. God's not mad. He's not even in a bad mood. God loves you and there's nothing you can do about it. Over in 1 John chapter two, it says, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. That means the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Did you know that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world 2000 years ago? He wiped sin out and sin is not the issue with God. I can't tell you everything I know in one night, but I'm just gonna put in a little commentary right here because I know that there's people sitting there saying, so you're making light of sin. You're saying people can just go live in sin. You're saying sin doesn't matter. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying God paid for your sin. God is not holding sin against you. God is not condemning you. There is no wrath from God against you because of sin but sin still has consequences, not from God, but we've got an enemy out there as a roaring lion who's going about seeking whom he may devour. And it says in Romans chapter six, verse 16, know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. If you yield to sin, God is not mad at you because he's already paid for your sin, all of your sin. He's not gonna hold back from you. He's not gonna not answer your prayer. He's not gonna punish you because of your sin. He punished his son because of your sin. 
But if you sin, you yield yourself to Satan, the author of that sin, and Satan is going to come in and eat your lunch and pop the bag. Amen. You don't want the devil on your case. The Bible says he only comes to steal, kill, and to destroy. So there are consequences to your sin. Don't sin. If you sin, you're stupid. You know what? If you never go to church again, that's a sin because the Bible says don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. You are supposed to be with other believers. If you don't go to church, that's sin. But you know what? God's not mad at you. God's not going to punish you. God won't quit answering your prayer. You're just stupid if you don't go to church because you aren't pooling your resources with other believers and helping establish the kingdom. You aren't receiving the benefit of being around other believers. I tell you, you need to be influenced by the word of God, not by the world. There's a million benefits to going to church. If you don't go to church, God still loves you, but you're just stupid. But what I'm saying is God loves you, stupid. He's not mad at you. And see, when I teach on this, some people, especially preachers, think, well, man, you're telling people not to go to church. I am not. I believe you need to be in church. I believe you need to study the Word. I believe you need to pray. You need to do all of these things, but you don't need to do it in order to get God to love you more. It's not that He loves you more if you do what's right, and He loves you less if you don't. God loves you independent of you. He doesn't love you because you are lovely. He loves you because he is love. And God's love is not affected by your performance, whether it's good or bad. But your performance will affect how much you love God. Your heart will become hardened to God if you don't live a holy life, if you don't study, if you don't pray, if you don't go to church. Doing the right thing won't change God's heart towards you, but it will change your heart towards God. And also to the degree that you can live holy and do the right thing, you shut the door on the devil and don't give him any inroad. Satan, Satan cannot do anything to you without your consent and cooperation. That's huge. I hadn't even got to these scriptures yet, but I could spend an hour on that one. And when you live in sin and when you don't seek God, you are cooperating with the devil. You are enabling him to come in and to destroy you. But God is merciful to your unrighteousness and your sin and iniquity, he will remember no more. That's not only the past sin that you've repented of and confessed confessed before you got born again, but it's even talking about future sin. And you can prove that because in the ninth chapter, he goes down and he starts contrasting the way things were done in the Old Testament versus the way that they were done in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, people had to offer a sacrifice for sin every time they sinned. And the reason for it was because The Old Testament sacrifices, it says that right here, that the blood of bulls and of goats could never take away sin. They were only symbolic. They were pictures, types and shadows of a New Testament reality. And so every time you sinned, you had to come and bring an animal and an animal had to die and its blood had to be shed. And that was a reminder to you that sin is punishable by death. Because of the mercy of God under the Old Testament, instead of just killing people, he allowed you to shed an animal's blood and substitute its life for your life. But it was a constant reminder that sin separates from God and you've got to have a payment for that sin. But because Jesus hadn't made the payment yet, it was only symbolic. And so it had to be done every single time and you had to live in constant remembrance of your sin. But then in the ninth chapter, it begins to contrast the New Testament. And this is one of the major differences between the New Covenant and the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant, every time you sinned, you had to go to God and get that sin forgiven because your sin never was forgiven. It was just covered. But in the New Testament, your sin has all been dealt with, past, present, and even future. Look at what it says right here. 
in verse uh, 11, it says, but Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of, of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once. Notice the word once. It's used, I think, four or five times in this chapter to contrast the Old Covenant with the New Testament. And in the New Testament, Jesus entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. You know, if words mean anything, this is significant. He didn't, he didn't obtain momentary redemption for us. He didn't re obtain redemption, which Colossians chapter one says was the forgiveness of sins. He didn't obtain that just until the next time you sinned and then you now have a new transgression against God, but he obtained eternal redemption for us. This is so clear. And again, I wished I had time to study through all of this, but in the ninth chapter, four or five times, it talks about once Jesus died, once you obtained eternal redemption, once you obtained eternal inheritance. You know, I talked to a woman tonight who loves God. She's, God's used her, blessed her, and flowed through her to bless other people, and yet she felt like she was going to hell because I don't know all of the reasons, but... Um, and you know what? I told her, I said, there's nothing wrong with you except just religion. It's just religion. You don't know the truth. You don't know the truth. But see, religion is taught that, oh, your sins could be forgiven. You could serve God for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And yet, if you go out and commit adultery, and if you were coming home from committing adultery and had a car wreck and didn't have time to confess that sin, you'd go to hell. That's religion. That is the opposite of what this is saying. It says you got eternal redemption. Eternal redemption. What part of eternal do you not understand? Eternal redemption through one sacrifice. Some people think, well, I know that one sacrifice did it, but every time I sin, I've got to go get that sin back under the blood. You can't find that in scripture. The closest thing to that, a scripture that people use often is James chapter one, verse nine, where it says, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, I hate to even get off on this because I could spend an hour fully explaining that verse and I don't want to do that. I got other things I want to cover, but let me just real quickly say that some people have tried to harmonize that with eternal redemption and your sins being forgiven by saying that's talking about people who weren't saved. This is telling you how you get saved. You confess your sins one time and you get saved one time and then after that it's done. I don't believe that's what it's talking about. I hadn't got time to give this a full treaty tonight, but let me just say that when you sin, even though your spirit is sealed, I'm gonna explain this more in just a second, your spirit is sealed and the sin didn't penetrate the seal around your spirit. Your spirit still is righteous and holy, even though that's true. And you do not have to get your spirit cleansed every time you sin. Your body and your soul get defi defiled by sin. And so what do you do when you have gone out and sinned and you've given Satan, you cooperated with him and you've given him a legal right to dominate you and to cause sickness and disease and poverty and depression. How do you deal with that? Well, you just confess it. The word confess in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 means to say the same thing. And you just say, Father, I thought I was right, but you know what? Now I acknowledge you in all my ways. I was wrong. You were right. I confess it that you're right. I repent. And the moment you do that, then the forgiveness that was already and and maintained in your spirit. It comes out through your soul and through your body and it takes Satan's inroad into your life away. So I still believe it's important for a Christian to repent when you go out and do something wrong and turn away from it, but not for the purpose of getting God to forgive you, but to cleanse you of the defilement that's in your flesh, not in your spirit. Man, I just said a mouthful. And I know that a lot of people don't even have the, 
they don't have the basics of understanding it's your spirit that got saved and so they aren't understanding some of the things that I'm saying. You can get my teaching on spirit, soul, and body that will explain this. I've got a teaching on redemption that will explain this. But anyway, it says that one sacrifice, he obtained eternal redemption. Drop down to verse 15. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the law or under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. And that's huge. Verse 12 talked about eternal redemption. Verse 15 talks about eternal inheritance. There is a huge segment of the body of Christ that believes in temporary inheritance instead of eternal inheritance. You only have an inheritance as long as you maintain and do all of these things. And they preach that you can be born again again, that you lose your salvation and you have to pray, you backslide and you have to pray and get born again again. There is no such thing. Thank you for that thunderous silence. <laughs> you know, when you're countering religious tradition, the Bible says, Jesus said that tradition and doctrines of men make the word of none effect. And I know that there's some of you that are hearing every word I'm saying, you're reading it, you're seeing it, and it doesn't matter because that's not what you've been taught. It's amazing to me how so many people do not let the Bible get in the way of what they believe. You know, back in the beginning of my ministry, I was painting a house for a woman. And uh, anyway, this woman, uh, I talked to her about the Lord all week long. It was a week long deal and she was a Baptist lady. And I was talking to her and talking about different things. And, and at the end of the week, she says, why did you ever leave the Baptist church? We need good young men like you in the Baptist church. Why did you leave? And I said, well, I didn't really leave. They kicked me out. They wouldn't let me go. They made me, I got kicked out of two Baptist churches. And she says, why did they kick you out? And I said, well, I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I was telling her about that. And she says, are you talking about speaking in tongues? And I said, well, that's part of it. That's not all that there is, but yeah, I spoke in tongues. And uh, she says, oh, they'd have kicked you out of my Baptist church too. And I turned over to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 39. And I said, right here, it says, forbid not to speak in tongues. And I showed it to her and I said, what do you say about that? It says right here, forbid not to speak in tongues. And she says, hey, there's lots of things in the Bible that we don't believe. <laughs> How do you talk to somebody like that? I don't know. So. But you know, it's amazing. I'm sharing these things from the Word and some of you are seeing it and saying, I see it, but I don't believe it. <laughs> if words mean anything, one sacrifice produced eternal redemption, eternal inheritance. I'm gonna have to skip some of these verses, but when you go home tonight, read this. And I pray that God would give you understanding because this is awesome what's being said. This is the reason the book of Hebrews isn't the favorite passage to most people. This is the reason when you see devotions and stuff, very few people do a devotion book on the book of Hebrews because it's just so contrary to religion today. They don't like it, but it's powerful. Let me just jump down and share some verses. In verse uh, 24, it says, for Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then, if he was offering himself offering, often, for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. This is saying that Jesus isn't like the Old Testament high priest that had to go in and offer sacrifices every time a person sinned. And then there was a day of atonement where you went in and you offered a sacrifice to cover all the rest of the sins of the people who didn't even ask for it and all of the sins that they missed. 
And so you just offered a sacrifice to cover everything. And it had to be done every single year over and over and over. There was a day of atonement. And he says, Jesus isn't like that. Jesus doesn't have to offer the same sacrifice over and over. If he, if he was like the high priest, he would have had to have died many, many times. Think right now how many millions of Christians there are around the world who repent of their sins and ask God to forgive them and put their sin under the blood. Jesus would be constantly putting his blood on the altar and atoning for sin. But this is saying he did it once and he obtained eternal redemption. And so it goes on to say in verse 25, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once, here's that word again, once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. As it is appointed unto man once to die, but after that the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many and unto them which look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. And if you were to go back and study this whole chapter, it's just emphasizing over and over and over. It's only once Jesus dealt with sins once and he's now seated at the right hand of God the Father. He's not standing in heaven making constant sacrifice and atonement for people. His job is over. He said, it is finished. He gave up his life and the, the, the separation between God and man because of sin is over. Jesus paid for it. By grace, he paid for the sins of the whole world, but it says in Ephesians chapter two, verse eight, by grace are you saved through faith. Now, some of you are listening to what I'm saying and saying, well, man, you just believe that everybody's saved then, that sin doesn't even matter. Is everybody going to heaven? No, because God's grace has brought salvation unto all men. Titus chapter two, verse 11. He's brought salvation unto all men, but it's by grace through faith. Grace is what God does. Faith is our part. God by grace paid for all of your sins, past, present, and future, but you have to reach out and take it by faith. And not every person has put faith in Jesus. And if you don't put faith in Jesus, then it's not your individual sins that will send you to hell because they've been paid for. It'll be your rejection of Jesus that sends people to hell. And if you understand that, rejecting Jesus is much worse than homosexuality, adultery, lying, stealing, anything. To take this greatest gift that God has ever given us, his son coming to this earth and ignoring him or rejecting him is infinitely worse than any sin that you could possibly imagine. And there isn't a hell deep enough or an eternity long enough to punish a person who neglects or rejects such a great gift. But see, it's not your individual sins. The church basically believes that Jesus can forgive sins, but it is only temporary up until the point you got saved. Every time you sin, you got to confess of that sin and get it under the blood and you lose your right standing with God. And what they're doing, they're still making sin the focal point and the major thing between them and God. These verses are saying Jesus died once and put away sin. And now he's merciful to our unrighteousness and our sins and iniquities he will remember no more. You have eternal redemption, eternal inheritance. Man, this is just nearly too good to be true. In chapter 10, verse one, for the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of those things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. Again, he's contrasting the old covenant way. The New Testament church is still living by old covenant standards. They don't understand the new covenant and they are thinking that sin. Every time we sin, we lose our relationship and we're separated from God again. They don't understand the new covenant. It's saying that these Old Testament sacrifices could never put away sin. They never cleansed the people. It was only symbolic. 
In verse two, it says, for then, if they could have worked, if they could have truly cleansed a person, then would they not have ceased to be offered? And there's a question mark. This is a question. If the Old Testament sacrifices could have really done something other than just provide us with a picture of something, but if they were real, if they actually worked, they would have quit offering the sacrifice. Well, the Old Testament sacrifices couldn't do it, but the New Testament sacrifice of Jesus did, and that's why we don't have a temple today. That's why we don't offer blood sacrifices today. That's why we don't go through all the sacrificial offerings that were commanded and demanded in the Old Testament, because Jesus is the Lamb of God that took away the sin of the world. Not only the believers, but the world. And one sacrifice ever, forever dealt with all sin, past, present, and future. Sin is not a hindrance between you and God. It's an inroad of Satan into your life, so quit sinning. But if you do sin, which all of us fall short, don't come under the guilt and condemnation and allow Satan to separate you from the love of God because nothing can separate you from the love of God, not even your sin. God loves you and there's nothing you can do about it. Amen. You can't make him love you more. You can't make him love you less. So in verse two, for then would they not have ceased to be offered? And look at this, because that the worshipers once purged, once purged, not purged every time they mess up. The worshipers once purged should have no more conscience of sin. You should have no more sin consciousness. And yet the average Christian is absolutely dominated by sin consciousness. We come before the Lord. Oh God, we come before you so humbly today. We're so unworthy. We don't deserve anything. Oh God, I am nothing. I have nothing. I can do nothing, but I know that you're awesome. You know what that is? Sin consciousness. Oh God, we aren't worthy. That's sin conscious. Somebody said, well, you aren't worthy. Well, in my flesh, I am not worthy. I don't deserve anything from God. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. John chapter 15, I believe it's verse four or five. Without me, you can do nothing. I agree with that 1000%. But what I disagree with is I'm never without Jesus. He'll never leave me nor forsake me. And for the New Testament Christian, just to say, I can do nothing is wrong. I can do nothing without Jesus, but since Jesus is always with me, I can do all things through Christ. And for me to sit here and focus on my unworthiness and just talk about how sorry I am is not glorifying to God. What would you think if you came into my house and if my kids were little and if they came running in and then they got a few steps away from you and they fell down on the floor and Oh, dad, I know I don't deserve it. I didn't make my bed. I haven't been perfect, but please, could I have something to eat? Please, would you help me? Please, and they started begging and oh, I'm not worthy, but I would just call on your mercy. I guarantee you, you'd look at me and say, something's wrong in this home. <laughs> These kids run and jump on me and ask me for things. And you know what? You as a parent love that. And the truth is maybe they didn't make up their bed. Maybe they didn't do what they were supposed to do. But you know what, you love them anyway. I had a dog, somebody, I don't know if this will apply or help you, but this really illustrated this to me. Right when the Lord was showing me these truths, I had this dog that was three-fourths German Shepherd and one-fourth Chow. And I bought it to be a watchdog for my mother when I went to Vietnam to protect her turned out that this dog, when it was young, was beat with a trace chain. And it was a big, mean looking dog. It would run and jump and the whole fence would sway. But if somebody would have opened up the gate and walked in the backyard, it would have hurt itself trying to get away. <laughs> and anyway, when I got back from Vietnam, I was studying and I was meditating on this and seeing how that we are supposed to come boldly before the throne of grace, that we shouldn't have any more conscience of sin. And yet I was raised in sin consciousness and unworthiness. And I was seeing it, but it was hard for me to grab. 
And I just walked out into my backyard and here comes my dog. I named this dog Honey because it looked like honey. It was the color of honey. So anyway, here comes Honey running across the yard and it gets up pretty about five or six feet away and it stops and rolls over on its side and starts whimpering and scooting up to me. And it, it, that's the way it always did because somebody had beaten this dog before. And anyway, I was sitting on the back porch and this dog, and I just got mad and I said, Hunt, you know, it's hard to get mad when your dog's name's Honey. <laughs> and I said, Honey, just one time, I'd like you to come run and jump on me like a normal dog and act like I'm not gonna beat you. I said, people think I've beaten you. And I was just reading this dog the riot act. And as I was talking to it, the Lord spoke to me and he says, Andrew, that's exactly the way I feel about you. He's, he says, just one time, I'd like you to just enter in and say, daddy, and not go through naming all of your sins and how sorry you are and how unworthy you are and talking about how you don't deserve anything. He says, one time, I'd like you to act like you didn't have any sin consciousness. I believe that God feels that way around about us, brothers and sisters. Am I saying that we are perfect and we don't? No, I'm not saying that. But God's a spirit, John 4, 24. And God looks at us in the spirit and not in the flesh. He's not looking on your external. He's dealing with you on that born again part. And he sees you as righteous and holy and pure as Jesus is. And just once he'd like you to not be sin conscious to come to him and act like he really loves you and there's nothing between you and him. That's a novel thought to a lot of Christians. We should have no more conscience of sin. Let me jump through some verses here. Go down to verse 10. It's talking about that Jesus died and put a will into effect. And in verse 10, it says, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Man, again, if words mean anything, what does this mean? You are sanctified by the one offering of Jesus Christ once for all. Not once until the next time you sin. Some people say, well, this is talking about one sacrifice was for everybody, but not for all time. Well, if you just keep reading, it'll explain to you. It's talking about for all time. Look at the next verse. It says, and every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. He's contrasting the old covenant with the new covenant. In the old covenant, they just offered sacrifices over and over. In verse uh, 12, but this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, not just for all people, yes, but forever. One sacrifice for sins forever sat down on the right hand of God. The significance of that is he is not up making atonement for people today. He did it one time. He dealt with the sins of the entire human race once and for all, once and forever. And he is seated. He is not making atonement and applying his blood to cover every one of your sins. It was already done. Man, that is awesome. And then in verse 13, it says, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. In verse 10, it says you were sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Verse 14 says those who've been sanctified have been made perfect forever. And again, the average Christian doesn't have this concept. The average Christian thinks, well, I may have been perfect. I was totally clean. I was perfect and pure when I got born again. But man, I've sinned since then. I haven't read the Bible. I got mad at my wife. I've lusted. I've done this. I failed to pay my tithe. I've messed up. And they have a sin consciousness come back on them. And yet the Bible says you've been made perfect forever. Forever. 
The reason people can't grab this is because they don't think about the spirit realm. They only think in the natural realm and they look at their physical body and they think this is perfect. And you see fat and you see, you know, baldness and you see wrinkles and zits and ugly and you look at this and think this is perfect. No, your physical body's not perfect. And then they search their soul, their mind and their emotions and they know that they don't think the way that they should. They don't love their mate as much as they should. They aren't as patient as they should be. They think thoughts, they get angry, they're jealous and they think this is perfect. And the average Christian functionally only acknowledges the physical and the soulish realm. But the truth of the Bible is, and this is what my teaching on spirit, soul, and body is all about, is that it's the spirit part of you that got born again. You are changed in your spirit. I can prove that. Look over here in the 12th chapter of the book of Hebrews. This is the same author writing. It's the same letter. We put chapter and verse divisions in for reference and there's nothing wrong with that, but it's not a new thought. And here's what this same author said in the same letter, just a few words later in chapter 12 and in verse 22, it says, but you are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to an innumerable company of angels to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven and to God, the judge of all. And look at this and to the spirits of just men made perfect. It's the same letter. It's the same author. He's explaining himself. The part of you that was made perfect forever is your spirit. Your flesh isn't perfect. This physical body, this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. Your body isn't perfect. Your soul's not perfect, but your little spirit is perfect. Perfect. According to Ephesians chapter four, verse 24 says, put on the new man, which after God was created in righteousness and true holiness. Your spirit is righteous and truly holy. And then Ephesians chapter one, verse 13 says that once we believed we were sealed with the Holy Spirit, you were vacuum packed. This spirit was created righteous and truly holy. And then immediately the Holy Spirit sealed it. And now when a Christian sins, that sin will penetrate your physical body. It'll penetrate your soul. It can make you discouraged, angry, bitter. It gives Satan inroad for depression, etc. But it can't penetrate the seal around your spirit. And John 4:24 says, God is a spirit and God sees you in the spirit. And when he looks at you, God is a spirit. He's looking at you in the spirit. He says, perfect. You are perfect. First John chapter four, verse 17 says, herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as Jesus is, so are we in this world. Not so are we gonna be in the next world, so are we in this world. The only part of you that is as Jesus is in this world is your spirit. Your body's not like Jesus. It may be more like Jesus than it's been. It may be more like Jesus than somebody else, but is anybody in here brash enough to say that you are as perfect as Jesus in your flesh, in your flesh. You didn't listen to the rest of my thing. In your flesh, nobody in here can claim that you are as perfect as Jesus. You can't claim that you're as perfect as Jesus in your soul, but your spirit is as pure and holy as Jesus. As Jesus is, so are you in this world. And because of that, Nothing can separate you from the love of God, not even sin. Your sin has already been paid for. If you went out and sinned tonight, and if you were truly born again, that sin would not penetrate the seal around your spirit. And you could still enter into the very presence of God and worship God in spirit and in truth. This is why the Bible says that you must worship him in spirit and in truth, because you can't approach God in your flesh based on your goodness. 
Sadly, this is what most of Christendom is teaching, that you have to be worthy and you have to have all your sins confessed and you got to go to church and pay your tithes and study the Word and get rid of all of these things and get your flesh cleaned up so you can approach God. You can't approach God in your flesh, even if it's a better flesh than my flesh. You can have USDA choice flesh and if it's flesh, it's still flesh. It is not worthy of worshiping God. You've got to worship Him in spirit which has been made sanctified and perfected forever. And if your spirit is perfect and sealed so that no sin can penetrate it, then even when you sin, you can still worship God in spirit and in truth, even with sin in your life. Again, most of the body of Christ would crucify me for saying what I've just said because they're saying you're making light of sin. Anybody who doesn't teach what I'm saying is making light of what Jesus did to pay for our sin. You're saying that he didn't do enough. Not only did Jesus have to suffer, but I've got to suffer for my sin. That's not true. God is not punishing me for my sin. If you understand this, this will explain why God is not gonna judge America. He judged Jesus. Now, does this mean that America is safe because God is not going to judge us? No, we're in the process of destroying ourselves. We've forsaken all of the good things. We are allowing people to live so ungodly, and I guarantee you, we are destroying each other. This nation is on a path that it cannot be sustained unless we repent and turn back to godly morals. But it's not God that's going to destroy us. We are in the process of destroying ourselves. You know, it's like if there was a huge storm outside and if it was raining and if I had this big umbrella and I said, come stand under this umbrella with me. And I, I, as long as you stood with me, you'd be dry from the rain. But then if you leave and walk off, don't get mad at me for making you wet. Man, I had the umbrella here to protect us, but you walked off and you're, that's the consequences of walking off. God's not judging America, but God's blessing are over us when we are cooperating with him, when we're yielding to him. But when we begin to say, we don't want you in our public schools, we don't want prayer. Man, they, there was a girl last week that said, bless you when somebody sneezed and they kicked her out of school for it. I heard today that there's a pizza place that offered a 10% discount to anybody that bring their church bulletin in and the atheists and agnostics uh, sued them under the uh, non-discriminatory laws that you are preferring Christians over us atheists and they're trying to make them take that away. When you do stuff like that, we're walking out from under the protection of God. We don't want God. And if our courts and if our uh, leaders continue on a path where they aren't honoring God, it's not God that's gonna judge us, but Satan. They got an enemy out there that's trying to destroy us. And I guarantee you, we're gonna be out from under his protection. And then people look and say, why did God let that happen? God didn't let it happen. We're the ones that walked away from God. We're the ones that reject God. We were talking yesterday about a friend of ours whose son died and this friend got mad at God. The son died in a car accident and the son loved God and the friend's mad at God and they hadn't totally recovered from it yet. They're still offended. And I said, how dumb is that? God didn't kill their son. God doesn't control if a, if a tire goes flat. God's not the one that made that go flat and yet people just immediately blame God. Why did God do that? God didn't do it. There are nails on the road that God didn't put there. Tires are a man-made invention. Cars are a man-made invention. It's not a perfect invention and there's things that can go wrong and because of it, people get killed and things happen. God didn't do it to them. God doesn't control all that stuff. God has made you perfect and God is not putting sin to your account. He's not punishing you. He's not rejecting you, but sin still has consequences. And if you go out and take what I'm saying and say, man, Let's go live in sin because God is not mad at me. You're just stupid. You're dumb to the second power. That's dumb, dumb. You are dumb because sin has consequences. Satan is gonna have a heyday with you. Amen? Don't do it. You know, I liken it to this. It's like there is a vertical and a horizontal effect to sin. 
The vertical effect is God's wrath and judgment that was shown in the Old Testament and poured out upon sin. In the New Testament, we don't have that because Jesus drew all sin unto himself. John chapter 12, verse 32. He drew all of the judgment and all of the wrath of God unto himself. So there is no longer any vertical effect of sin. God is not raining punishment on anybody because of their sin. But there still is the horizontal effect. Sin opens the door to the devil and gives Satan access to you. And so there still is an effect of sin, not from God, but from the world, from people. If you take what I'm saying tonight and say, hey, I'm sanctified and perfected forever. All of my sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future. I don't have to follow any laws anymore. And so you go out of here and just start speeding, go 120, 30 miles an hour on the road, and when the cop stops you, hey, I don't have to abide by this. I'm forgiven of all things. You know what? You're still forgiven. God's not mad at you. But as you pay this humongous fine and get your license taken away from you, God will still love you and be pleased with you as you sit and rot in jail. Amen. Go out and tell your employer, hey, I don't have to perform. God's looking at me in the spirit. So it doesn't matter if I show up for work. If I do a good job, I just am free. Well, it's true. God loves you. And as you are in the unemployment line because you've been fired, God will still love you just the same as he ever did. But there's consequences to your actions. And because there are consequences, people have immediately attributed all of those results to God. It's God that causes you to lose your job. It's God that punished you. It's God that made you sick. It's God that caused this. Nope, that's not true. God placed all of his judgment against your sin upon Jesus. He paid for all of your sins, past, present, and future. He's not mad at you. He's not going to be mad at you. There's nothing you can do to make him love you more. There's nothing you can do to make him love you less. God loves you and that's it. But there's things you can do that will make you love God less. And so you need to live a holy life and do the right things, but not in order to plead God, but to change your heart towards God. And if you understood this, it would change you. You know, again, I say that I am so glad that God called me to preach this message of grace and gave me this revelation because if I was living a sinful life, if I was living in adultery and lying and stealing and doing things, then people would be able to criticize this message and say, you're just preaching this so you can indulge your flesh. But you know what? I'm living a holier life than most of you have ever thought about. I'm now 65 years old. I've never said a word of profanity. I've never taken a drink of liquor. I've never smoked a cigarette. I've never tasted coffee. Some of you think, coffee? I'm not saying that you can't drink coffee. You got a scripture that says you could drink coffee. Mark chapter 16, verse 18 says you can drink any deadly thing and it shall not harm you, amen. I'm just saying, hey, I've lived a holy life. Most of you haven't lived as holy as I have. And so you can't sit here and say that I'm preaching this so that I can go live in sin. I'm not living in sin. I'm living a holy life. The Bible says, Titus chapter two, verse 11, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men. Verse 12 says, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. True grace will cause you to live holier for God accidentally than you've ever lived on purpose before. Once you understand how much God loves you, it will cause you to give up anything for God. You'll love him so much. You'll be so appreciative how a holy, almighty God could make you as righteous and as pure as Jesus without your contributing to it. All you contributed was your sin and then you received it as a gift. You'll become so thankful that you'll live for God and serve him and grace will cause you to live a holy life. People who take what I'm saying and use it for an excuse to go live in sin are deceived or a deceiver. I'm telling you, true grace causes you to live holy. Amen. So if you could receive what I said tonight, God loves you and nothing will ever separate you from that. That would transform your life. 
And if you could understand this and then go back and read these scriptures, read the book of Hebrews now, trying to understand what I'm saying, it'll become one of your favorite passages of scripture. It'll make sense once you understand that there's a difference between the way it was done in the old covenant and the way it's done in the new covenant. There's a, there's a huge difference between the old covenant and the new covenant, more than just one blank page in your Bible. Man, it's awesome, the difference. And we need to move into this new covenant and take advantage of what Jesus has done for us. You know, I've been talking to believers tonight, but if you don't know Jesus Christ personally, I've explained to you what true salvation is. It is having Jesus pay for your sins. It's not about you being good. Most people have this concept that if my good outweighs my bad, then I'll get into heaven. That's not true. God's not going to judge you relative to other people or relative to anything else. You either have to be 100% perfect, which you aren't, all of sin and come short of the glory of God, or you have to put faith in a Savior who died and paid for all of your sins. And there's a lot of people today who are really putting faith in themselves, thinking, well, I'm a good person. I've turned over a new leaf. I'm not as bad as I used to be. I don't dip or cuss or chew or go with those that do. Certainly God's going to accept me. That's not salvation. That's not being born again. If you don't know Jesus, you need to make Jesus your personal savior tonight. And I want to give you an opportunity to do that. It's as simple as Romans chapter 10, verse nine. It says, if you shall confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Jesus has already paid for everything. It's not a matter of will he forgive your sins. He's already forgiven them. The, the question is, will you put faith in Jesus and appropriate what he's done for you by believing on him and making him your Lord? If you will do that, you can be saved tonight. And if you're born again, you also need the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which includes speaking in tongues. That's not all that there is to it, but speaking in tongues is a powerful, powerful gift. And many, many people don't understand this. They don't understand the benefit of it. I, I hadn't got time to teach you tonight, but I'm telling you, my life changed more outwardly when I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues than it did when I got born again. Now being born again is absolutely essential. It's the first step. I'm not minimizing that, but that's inward. When I got born again, it was my spirit got changed. But when I received the Holy Spirit, it's like Jesus said, power comes upon you when you receive the Holy Spirit. And the Word of God just came alive. The Holy Spirit's the one that wrote the Bible. He will explain it to you. Speaking in tongues helps you to understand the scripture because you are releasing this wisdom of God in a mystery. So anyway, you, every person in here needs those two things. Every person in here needs to be born again. And if you've already been born again, then you need this baptism of the Holy Spirit, which includes speaking in tongues. Is there anybody in here tonight who would raise your hand and say, I don't have one or both of those. I want you to pray for me. I'd like to receive. Anybody in here needs to make Jesus your Lord or receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Amen. This lady's ready over here, man. She's, she's after it. Anybody else? If that's you, I just want you to be bold. and raise. Your... We hope your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. It's the faithful support of people like you who make this ministry possible. We invite you to prayerfully consider becoming a partner with Andrew Womack Ministries. We maintain a website at awmi.net. Our helpline number is 719-635-1111, or you can write us at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80934. Until next time, we pray that you'll reach out by faith and receive everything that's yours through God's grace.